I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Welcome to Nature Biotechnology's First Rounders podcast. Today we're speaking with Henry Tremere, the first CEO at Genzyme, a company he joined in 1983 and ran for 28 years. In that time, the company went from small startup to biotech flagship until it was sold for more than $20 billion to Sanofi in 2011. Henry, thanks for coming into our offices. Good to be here, Brady. Okay, I want to talk about the early years at Genzyme, and, but I want to go even further back. So you were born in the Netherlands, I think, is that That's correct? That's right, yeah. So take us through that path, how you went from being in the Netherlands. I think you spent time in London and then you got your MBA at, at Virginia right. and eventually got to Genzyme. How did that How did that go? So I was born in the Netherlands, mm-hmm. uh, spent my youth there, um, went to the uh, Dutch Air Force at some point, uh, joined um, Erasmus University uh, mm-hmm. to study economics, went to England to write uh, a paper, uh, but never returned. But, so, so we, I'm sorry, to write a paper as part of your as education? As part of my studies. Ah. Yeah. So I was supposed to return, deliver the paper, and, and just finished studies there. Uh, but I met people that, uh, English, uh, young people that, mm-hmm. that had been, uh, in the United States, had gone through different, uh, school experiences. And they convinced mm-hmm. me to, uh, to come to the United States, which I did after three years. Um, so I was three years in England. And in that time in England, I, I did different things. Among others, I set up an, an early, uh, computer services company, uh, while I was there. I was in my 20s. It was a great experience. So, so that would be your first foray into business. You're that was my first uh, experience, yeah. yeah. And this is before you had your MBA? That was before I had the MBA. So then I came to the United States when I was 25. Mm-hmm. I tried different schools and ended up in Virginia, which was uh, great for me. Worked out beautifully. Charlottesville, beautiful place. I know it. Uh, Darden School, great school. Early school at that time was still very young. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, they have the case method, which is great when you come into stuff. And, and, and I had a great experience. And, two, and I, I was on the board of the Darden School for maybe 15 years uh, since that time. And uh, I really think it's a great place. Uh, but I had my experience there. And I wanted to come back to Europe while I was uh, at the Darden School. So we interviewed at The Economist, uh, which had a consulting, has still a consulting group, uh, at Unilever, at Shell, at a number of the usual suspects. Mm-hmm. But this now, remember, this is the very early 70s, long time ago. And uh, people weren't really appreciating all the stuff that I'd done. And they weren't really responsive to what I thought I needed. I wanted to do some, 
something in an in a general management sense. I wanted to run something, and I wanted to it to be an, a global thing, uh, and I wanted it to be an adventure mm-hmm. in some way. So on the campus, as is so usual here, uh, different companies came, and uh, I interviewed with these companies, and among others was a company called Baxter. And Baxter uh, was then a fast-growing, young, very innovative healthcare company. Mm-hmm. Still is around today. They are a large company now with over 30,000 employees. Uh, and But they were then in the beginnings of building a global business. They had some interesting products in in dialysis and in IV solutions, and but also the beginnings of biotechnology. They were using plasma as a uh, source, mm-hmm. And, and fractionate plasma to produce factor eight and factor nine and albumin uh, for as therapeutic products. So I joined them in '73. So, the sorry campus. to interrupt, but you at, up until that point you had not thought about working in healthcare no. until you saw Baxter, and they sort of they convinced me. In you. fact, they were the very last people that I I, I saw on the campus. I, I did uh, you know the McKinsey uh-huh. and and different banks. Uh, J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs. Uh, I spent quite a bit of time in in, in New York as a possibility to mm-hmm. to get to know. See, this country was new to me. I was I was clearly a foreigner, and and I was on an adventure. <laughs> so I wanted to be in a place where I could observe lots of things. And a bank or consulting firm seemed quite relevant. But Baxter made made an, a very special impression. They were very innovative. They said, we, we, we are looking for somebody like you who speaks European languages, who wants eventually to go back to Europe, uh, and wants to help us build mm-hmm. this company and to be a general manager. So I joined them uh, in 73. Okay, so you joined them in 73. Right. And spent roughly 10 years there. 10 years, yeah. So how did Genzyme find you, or was it the other way around? Genzyme found me. They... Uh, Baxter grew mm-hmm. in the 10 years, and, and I had different general management tasks, you know, what I was looking for. Among others, I ran the German company for them, uh, which was also a young company, but we were building it. And we but you were still based it. in the U.S. for this? No, I was in Germany. Ah, okay. I, was, I went uh, to Munich, mm-hmm. where, where the headquarters uh, for the German company was. Uh, we were very successful uh, in those days, and, and uh, I was... Um, Enjoying it immensely because I was learning how to do a lot of things as a young man and mm-hmm. and uh, introduced new products. I got to know much more about what healthcare means. Uh, the German market is very competitive, so mm-hmm. I learned how to compete. But after uh, three years in Germany, uh, I was asked to come back. And I was asked to come back to become uh, a vice president and eventually executive vice president of the Highland therapeutics division, which was one of the four divisions, product divisions of the company. And that division was located in California. And Highland is really a biotechnology company. They were uh, The source they were using was plasma, mm-hmm. uh, because that was all ava- what was available then. Uh, but soon, when biotechnology became uh, more than a sort, uh, we started to work with early stage biotech firms like Genentech to produce uh, these proteins from uh, through biotechnology means rather than through uh, extraction. Uh, but I was there for four years, four and a half years at um, Highland, mm-hmm. uh, ran most of the activities uh, of the division, 
but I was not the president. I was the executive vice president. But I ran R&D and global R, uh, marketing and, self, and finance. And um, also the relationships with these biotech firms uh, with whom we started to think they could replace plasma as a source. Right. Um, and that's how I became familiar with the biotechnology industry, which was very early days. But so you were running R&D with no science background yourself? That's right, yeah. yeah. How did I, you pick it up? No, of course, I was not doing the, uh, no, sure, the, the experiments. I was, uh, that was a department that reported to me, and, and you eventually you, you pick up, huh. uh, you get a sense for it, and, and I've been doing it ever since at Gentime as well. Right. It, it, it's okay. You, you, get a, you become uh, not a scientist, but you become familiar. Sure. Uh, and, and you can start to judge how people manage and do things. Um, so uh, in the early 80s, when biotechnology became an interesting entrepreneurial activity, uh, when it was still sought of by the, the major companies as being something to shy away from, maybe to do a deal around, but not really to invest in, mm -hmm. uh, these companies and the venture capitalists in this field were looking people and Baxter was a great resource for young people because Baxter had this reputation to build general managers uh, so I got calls eventually a call from Genzyme uh, they, and I was interested because uh, I was in Los Angeles and of course Europe was my home right and uh, the distance between Los Angeles and Europe is way Longer than yeah. Boston to mm -hmm. Europe. And, uh, and uh, Boston, of course, then already became a bit of a center in, in, in biotechnology. It had a certain reputation around Genent, uh, Biogen and mm -hmm. some other companies. Uh, and so that was very interesting. I visited. Um, this was very early days for Genzyme. They were on the 15th floor at 75 Neyland Street in the combat zone in right. Chinatown. Right. Um, a romantic neighborhood where you would get propositions <laughs> one way to call before, it, right. before you get to work. Uh, but I had a very interesting um, connection with a group of scientists from MIT, eight scientists that had formed a company called, or a consulting firm called Bioinformation Associates. Mm. And they were advising different people, including governments in this space, and they were, uh, became connected with Genzyme at about the same time that I started to talk to them. And the venture capitalists then, uh, who had sort of asked me to look into this, uh, also started to expand. There was one venture capitalist, Oak Ventures was involved, and there were three additional venture capitalists that were looking to make a small investments. So simultaneously in early 83, these three venture capitalists, these eight professors from MIT, one from Harvard, uh, and myself, we all looked at this tiny company with 17 people uh, that had no particular plan yet, but could have a big aspiration, uh, an aspiration to, to do something in this space where Genentech already was making a mm -hmm. big name for itself. Um, and we convinced each other, and I signed on to be the uh, president. So until, and up until that point, um, Genzyme had no VC funding. Or, no, or had it had one a VC uh, company had given the founder, which is Henry Blair, oh. an, an, an entomologist, 
the money to buy a little company in England uh, that made diagnostic enzymes for the clinical chemistry mm-hmm. uh, space. So that was the starting point. So they had this little office uh, laboratory in Boston, and they had this little production company in um, England. And the production company was the technology. That was the first technology. That was the entomology yeah. technology, yeah. yeah. That, uh, they had really – that was very old-fashioned entomology. They, they were extracting things. From placentas? Uh, for, no, in that no. case, uh, for all kinds of uh, resources to get uh, – uh, the different diagnostic enzymes. Mm-hmm. Um, in the uh, Boston office, they were using placentas to extract glucosidecides, and that was for, for a contract the, for the NIH. Uh, they had a contract with the NIH mm-hmm. to produce some of that enzyme f- extracted from uh, placentas. The NIH actually paid for a small plant. Uh, on this in this building uh, at 75 Nenon Street, uh, tiny as big as this room, very tiny, uh, where there were some chapels, uh, centrifuges, mm-hmm. uh, where they took placentas that were collected in the hospitals in the neighborhood. And, uh, and then the resultant product was then sent to the NIH, uh, where it uh, uh, was part of a research program that then led not so much longer uh, and we were able to talk about it when I talked about joining. We talked about this program and how quick it could get to the clinic, really used in patients. So, but was the NIH putting it into patients in their own trial? Uh, they were using uh, unmodified form huh. of the enzyme in uh, putting it into patients, and it didn't want to work. What eventually worked was a modified form of the enzyme where the glycosylation was modified, so when you introduced it, it would find the right cells, the macrophage cells. Uh, and that happened about a year later. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we were uh, the company was in the middle of those kinds of considerations, the, the scientific modifi- uh, basis for the modification, and then what to do uh, in a clinical sense. So when I joined... That's what piqued my interest because the the reason that I wasn't afraid of it, these were placentas. We needed many, many placentas to treat one patient, um, uh, was that at Baxter, we were using plasma and we were uh, fractionating factor eight or factor nine for hemophiliacs and giving it to patients. Mm-hmm. And it worked. It worked every time. So I had this uh, probably naive sense this probably should work because if these patients miss this enzyme and if you figure out a way to deliver it to the right spot it ought to work mm-hmm. it's nature it's how it works right um, and uh, that was my quiet basis uh, why i made this decision to, to make the jump uh, to, to make join the jump. enzyme right yeah. so you left la for at a stable job where you were high up for right. a startup uh, you were first I think they brought you on as president and then... It was executive vice president of... Oh, yeah, I joined as president uh-huh. in the case of Genzyme, yeah. So I, I left uh, half my... Uh, reduced my salary by 50%, yep. got some stock, and got this uh, uh, group of people, enthusiastic people, these professors. They were very enthusiastic, very compelling people, um, and, uh, and moved some to venture capitalists. And moved to the combat zone. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I know that I think Genzyme 
even in their first year had had revenue coming in. Yeah, I think like two two million or something. Yeah, they're from these diagnostic right. enzymes. Yeah. So were they always profitable? No, we 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 broke even the first two years, uh, which was massive, of course. Yeah. Uh, so the way we built the company when we were private, which was um, only a few years, mm-hmm. um, was to um, to get a little bit of money from these venture capitalists um, and run it at a level where we would not uh, need more money. Uh, of course, wh- where we needed the real money for was once we took this enzyme for Gaucher disease to the patients, yep. then we needed to raise more money. Okay, so let's let's talk about that. Um, I mean, from the research I've looked at, you were using placentas for quite a while. You had, you yeah. had um, a collection, uh, an area of collection set up in, in Europe uh, and I think it took something like 22,000 placentas to dose one one patient. That's right. So um, it seemed like the, the board was not on board, actually, with, with following this as a product. Because it just seemed like too much work. But you felt it could work and somehow convinced the board to chase what became Saraday's. Yeah, it was not the board. It was more interesting. And it's very interesting for people that may listen to this. Um, this was a scientific advisory uh, committee. These were the professors. Mm-hmm. We spent a day in early, um, uh, in 84, kind of mid-84, uh, thinking through what should we do? Should we push this forward or should we do something else? And they uh, advised me not to push it forward. Now, the evidence that we had was one single patient that had been given the enzyme and had reacted beautifully. The counter evidence was that there were eight additional patients given the enzyme and it didn't work. You couldn't see it. The reason we found out in that period too probably was that we didn't give them enough. The first was a kit of three years, small kit, and we gave the same amount of enzyme to these uh, other um, uh, more juvenile kids, 14, Mm -hmm. 15 years old. So uh, it probably worked, but we couldn't see it. It was not, it was dosed too low. Uh, so when I decided to go ahead, I had seen the eyes of the patient. I'd seen the eyes of the mother and the father and the family. Uh, and for me, it was clear this really uh, would work. The scientist said, Henry, uh, it may well work. It is an anecdote. This one patient. We do not know quite the reasons why it doesn't know for the other patients. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, they said, and this is the more interesting part, they said, gene therapy is just around the corner. <sighs> this is the early 80s. And it's still just around the corner. And now we are right. you know, 30 years further. Right. Um, and uh, that's uh, the nature of our technology. You cannot know. And uh, when something works, you have to respect it. Uh, uh, that judgment uh, that few of us came to um, uh, was actually quite important because we were able to go from placentas to normal recombinant technology using Cho cells mm-hmm. to produce it, cell culture uh, about three or four years after the approval of the first product. So it, in those three or four years, we were able to help these patients. Uh, we treated about a thousand patients. With the, with uh, using with the placentas? Placenta, yeah, wow. around the world. And they enormously benefit because these were the most severe patients. Um, uh, but, of course, in that period of time, we used enormous amounts of placenta. 33% of all placentas from birth in this country 
we found a way, a mechanism, to get it to a little town in France, Marseille-les-Toiles, outside of Lyon, where we processed it. It's a mind-boggling uh, thing to think about, just to do that. Uh, yeah, and I think I read that, that you were using a modified wine press or something. No, the, the, by, this was a French company, uh-huh. uh, Pasteur Marieux, part of Grand Poulenc, yeah. large company, mm-hmm. very serious company. They were using placentas to produce albumin and immune globulins. Um, but they needed the fluid that came with placentas. Right. So they would, uh, the placentas would ah. go through the wine press, take out the fluid. The fluid would go into vaccination plant. They would like what Baxter was doing. You were using plasma. They were using the fluid that came with the placentas. And then you would have the placentas. We needed the tissue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I agreed with them that we would build. They would. I gave them the money. We didn't have much money. So we gave them a little bit of money. And we gave them an interest in the resultant product uh, uh, to build a little plant uh, next to their plant to process the placentas to relatively uh, crude form uh, extraction. And then it was sent to Cambridge uh, in this country where we would purify it and modify it. And then we would send it to uh, Albuquerque in New Mexico to have it uh, put in a vial. And then it would find its way all around the world. Uh, uh, to these patients. So were you somewhat limited? Um, you, the amount of patients that you could treat, were you limited because of how quickly you could produce the, the product using this method? No, the amount of placentas. Was, yeah. yeah. Oh, that was it. Yeah. So when you went to Cho Cells, that really opened opened things up. And so that leads to another question, though. Ceredes was approved with this placenta-based method. And then when you went to Cho Cells, you needed to... Uh, Do clinical trials. Again, and a new manufacturing clearance. Ab- Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Everything else. So, yeah. yeah. This was a very nerve-breaking process because we didn't know was a, the product was the same mm-hmm. or same enough. Um, and so we needed to go through the whole clinical uh, development, and we started to build the plant. We need, needed to get away from placentas. This was in the middle of the HIV period. Yeah. Uh, you know, and this was the only use for placentas that was approved in Europe, the only. We had never a problem. This was the great 
advantage to work with really smart people. They, uh, we found ways to inactivate or reduce the viral risk associated with this source. But nonetheless, we wanted to get past this point, plus we needed the supply. So we started to build uh, a plant, a large plant, uh, next to the Harvard Business School mm -hmm. uh, in Boston, um, ahead of knowing whether the recombinant product that was in clinical trials actually would produce the same fantastic result that the first product, uh, the uh, placenta product produced, which it did. And that became then Cerozyme, which is still in the market today. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And those two, I mean, those two drugs basically launched Genzyme. And I mean, I, it, from the outside, it looks like that established your, your business plan. Yeah, you're going to go after orphan drug enzyme replacement um, indications. Um, definitely life-saving, life-changing, which allowed you to price them at a premium. And that became, you know, the Genzyme model, which is still being imitated by companies today. Yeah, and it is a bigger deal than the way that you summarized, Brady. Um, when something, uh, when you fight, it took us a it took us almost 10 years, right? Mm -hmm. In 91, we got the first product approved. Um, we were fighting every day to survive. There were more people that told me not to do this, including the first meeting at the FDA, uh, where they said, are you, what are you thinking of? Have you heard about HIV? You know, this is a tease. You can't do this. So there were so many distracting forces. And every time we were able to overcome them. Uh, so it built a culture that says you can actually do this. You can revolutionize in a particular space a disease situation. Uh, and that became the basis for Genzyme. We then repeated that a number of different times, always with this attitude to say we can get there. It may be unusual. It may be different. It may not have been done before. But we did it once. And we can get there. And uh, that culture is what, what really created, I think, the, the Genzyme picture that, that Sanofi became so interested in mm -hmm. afterwards uh, recently. And also you see it now repeated in, in many companies that work in this space. It's not so much that there is a big economic value. It is that there is a big clinical value, a big patient value. Uh, which, of course, uh, becomes recognized in terms of sure. society wants to make it available, mm -hmm. not just here, but around the world. Uh, but the critical piece is that you make a big difference. A small palliative difference is not enough. You mean in the patient? Yeah, yeah. for the patient. You yeah. make the, really need to make the patient feel, uh, not only feel, but repair Be the disease. Yeah. yeah. So that, that brings us to, it's a nice segue into the Sanofi uh, acquisition. You know, from the outside, this was a, this was a drawn out negotiation between the two of you. Yeah. And um, you know, it, as observing this, it, it became clear that Genzyme felt they were worth more than what Sanofi was um, valuing you guys at, and you held out. How did you manage to sort of get the value that you felt was in Genzyme? Have that reflected in the deal? We had grown very rapidly. Mm -hmm. We were. It took us um, until two thousand two to get to a billion in revenue. By 2008, we were at four and a half billion in revenue. So we were growing exponentially, and we were building factories and we were doing this, that, and the other. And uh, you know, we had an, a setback, and the setback was in manufacturing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, where we were short in manufacturing capacity because a plant that we were building in 
framing in Massachusetts and in Belgium, two different cell culture plants, weren't yet ready. Mm -hmm. So we've focused all the cell culture capacity and use on one plant, and we essentially paid a price because we were overused it to some extent, got into some compliance issues, uh, but also reduced the inventories of certain products. Then we were hit by a virus, and we had never been hit by a virus. This was our, uh, you know, the popular expression is black swan. Right. We had, it was not part of our consciousness. Um, and um, we had run these plants for a long, long, long time, 20 years, never hit by a virus. We were hit by a virus, seriously enough, that we decided to, uh, to close the plant. Because the virus uh, hit not the product, it hit the, the Cho cells. It, mm -hmm. it reduced the productivity. We couldn't produce, essentially. So we needed to take the whole plant apart. When we did that, uh, it was an enormous effort. Uh, we were, of course, impacted um, in two ways. One, the impact, we lost the production. We didn't have the inventory. We needed to start to ration the patients. That had been relying on us mm -hmm. for a very long period of time. This was, a, you know, Jensen is a very, still today, a very patient-centered culture. For us not to be able to give enough product to patients in terms of their real therapeutic need was an extremely painful and how did you manage through. How did you tell the patients this? We had workshops and we had, we were as transparent as you possibly could be transparent. We had, we had many uh, town halls, mm -hmm. uh, many of them I participated in on the uh, phone. We tried to communicate. We worked, of course, with the FDA, with the regulatory authorities around the world. Um, and there's nothing you can do other than to be as open as possible, make everybody understand what to expect. The other thing that happened, so it was a shortage that came from closing it, but then restarting it. Uh, in We never, uh, this experience of closing a plant of that size and this was a continuous production plant, and then restarting it, mm -hmm. uh, we didn't have any experience with that. The productivity of the plant uh, started very slow. We, we lost a lot of productivity. So the replenishment of the inventories was slow. We were also in the middle of an introduction of a life-saving drug called myosin mm -hmm. for pompa disease uh, that we needed to maintain because here this was a disease that unless you give it to the patient in time, the patient will actually not survive uh, not having the, uh, the product. So there were many things that came together. Uh, bottom line was that the stock market uh, was watching this and say, you know, we're concerned about this and our earnings were impacted clearly. Do you think Sanofi came at you because your stock was a little depressed at that time? Yes. They uh, they came at us also because they appreciated what we were doing. Sure, but, but they thought they could get a, a, a bargain at this point. They were, uh, it was a great moment. Uh, the other major pharmaceutical firms uh, were very busy yeah. in other transactions. Uh, you know probably what those were. Yeah. And, um, and they called us and say, you are a very interesting asset for us. You fit strategically. And that's where Chris V. Barker, the CEO, myself, agreed very easily. Yes, I could see, given that picture, the, the, this uh, patent expiry uh, issue was much more clear uh, at that time, mm -hmm. 2010, uh, than it was uh, in 2007, 2008. Uh, they really needed to do stuff. And, and I could understand. And, uh, and I also could understand that they too saw us as a very valuable but below 
price price situation uh, because of the um, manufacturing uh, issue. Uh, and then he called back again shortly thereafter and said that they were actually very interested. In the beginnings, it was an interest that could have led to some kind of collaboration. Right. Second call was to say, now we really uh, like to, uh, uh, to become involved. And what the board said, and I said, that, that this was not the moment for us because we knew we would out- come uh, behind, we would come beyond the problems we had on manufacturing that we would recover market share. Mm-hmm. And that was just a matter of time and execution. The plants that we were building were uh, getting to a more advanced stage. Um, so we said, this is not the time. Uh, our value is too much uh, uh, depressed as a result of this. And then you got the nine months of discussion between these two companies where eventually uh, I think the value uh, proposition became adjusted in a way that, that made sense. To our shareholders. I'm trying to remember what the first, you know, something leaked out or they, they came public with their first offer. It was 68. They offered 68. Per we share. Were, yeah, per share. We were trading in the low 50s. So it was a good premium. Sure. Um, but uh, uh, that was not uh, really expressing. Where it ended up was 74 uh, plus uh, an additional. Uh, uh, 14. F- yeah. 14 if, if everything works. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And that's what, I mean, that's what you felt, you know, as far as you're concerned, those things are going to work. Yeah. So that was faith. clearly in my mind. We were spending yeah. $2 million a week to make that work. Yeah. Our shareholders had been spending that for a while. They, 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 they were, we were spending it because we felt it would work. And so far, so good. So it's it's early, of course, but Sanofi's yeah. been pleased. Genzyme's been pleased. You're, you're they filed for that product, uh, Lemtrada, uh, in the United States and in Europe, and we will see during this year what mm-hmm. happens on on the review. Uh, but that was, uh, you know, the the, the sense. Uh, you know, Sanofi is talking about this product in a very uh, positive way. Yeah. Uh, at the time, they thought about it in, in in thinking it was probably going to be a difficult product. Um, Maybe that reasons to say so because of the value discussion we had. Sure, um, but this uh, CVR does give an, a very nice way to um, for both sides to uh, to bridge something. Right. Um, since you've moved on from Genzyme, you've done some other things. We can talk about those. You sit on some boards, uh, and most recently, you're a strategic advisor for Prosensa. Yeah, Presenza is a company in the Netherlands, right. uh, and and uh, I that, go to the Netherlands back and forth yeah. many times. And I also started another company in the Netherlands uh, in cystic fibrosis, a very early stage company, developing a uh, therapy for cystic fibrosis, and maybe it may work uh, based on some of the technologies available there. Mm-hmm. It's just being financed now, um, and uh, I advise an, a, a larger uh, company in Europe. So I go back and forth to Europe uh, regularly, but these are advisory roles or investments or I'm helping an entrepreneur to get going as the cystic fibrosis case. Uh, In the U.S., I'm on some boards like I'm the chairman of Avio Pharmaceuticals. Mm -hmm. I'm on the board of Abiomet, which is an artificial heart company. On the board of Virastem, which is a cancer stem cell company, early stage, uh, but also public now. And on the board of, and the chair of the board of medical simulation, which is a simulation company in the medical field. And then I advise some other companies here uh, that 
uh, that do things in an entrepreneurial sense. Uh, so I become very busy. Beyond that, uh, and, and but consistent with this involvement is my involvement with MIT, where I'm uh, on the board and on the executive committee and uh, very involved in the institutional uh, side of things there. And uh, the Harvard uh, Medical School Board of Fellows and the Mass General uh, Board. Um, so these three institutions also keep me very involved on the discovery piece and the clinical piece, uh, which makes the connection into the uh, biotech piece a little easier. So yeah. you, are you involved um, as like tech transfer, sort of getting things out of MIT and do... Yeah, but more I'm involved in at a different level, kind of creating different activities at MIT uh, that get created as uh, at an on an institutional level. Uh, I'm also the chair of the risk and audit committee for the uh, for the institution, uh, so I'm more involved in that than I would be involved in in technology transfer. Which sure, yeah. So uh, through all this work that you're doing now. Um, especially with companies like like ProSensa, which is mm. in the same field that yep. Genzyme was, what are the what are the major differences between trying to start a company today versus you know when Genzyme was started in the early '80s? And I, I mean that from a funding standpoint, basically. Now, Brady, it never was easy. In the past, we had the difficulty that pharmaceutical companies really weren't very interested, mm -hmm. that people were a little sus suspect around biotechnology, what could it mean? Um, that people, there was no experience of building companies. It was kind of, uh, you had to figure it out. There were no real sport organizations like CROs or mm -hmm. manufacturing organizations. So there were a lot of issues there. Uh, and there were ups and downs on the financing side. There was an advantage that you could use many different vehicles in financing, you know, R&D partnerships and public R&D partnerships. We had at one time, four letter stocks that were part of the Genzyme yeah, picture. Yeah, tracking stocks. Uh, tracking stocks. And uh, so there was, uh, and some of them we created uh, uh, and, and really were very helpful for us to do what we did without having to sell ourselves mm -hmm. in uh, what's often called misleadingly as non-dilutive financing. When you sell your equity, your and staking your product to a large partner, that's enormously dilutive. Yeah. You know, that's not, not dilutive. But that's often talked about in that way. So today, the marketplace is much more ready. We have a much broader understanding of the technologies, much broader understanding of the possibilities and appreciation for the possibilities. Uh, of course, uh, there are moments. At the moment, we have such a moment. Uh, better today than maybe a year ago, but there are moments where... The, Capital is uh, very risk adverse, and, and you need to work very hard to get capitalized. But good quality programs can get funded. And there's a whole new possibility over the next 25 years using um, uh, the technologies to make known that patients are familiar with what's happening. I think in the end, it's not the NIH which will push uh, what, what this industry will do. Which really what uh, this industry came out of enormously powerful, very positive uh, uh, injections of interest, catalyzing injections by uh, by the NIH. I think in the future it will be the patient because we're going to know more about, and the patient will know more about what the possibilities are, and they will become interested, and they they will figure out 
who can do something about it? Um, and uh, because of the, the whole power of, of uh, social networking, uh, and that will help the funding too. Uh, so the patients, of course, through tax paying, uh, paying taxes and taxes being allocated to the NIH and being redistributed, of course, always paid for it. But in the future, it may well be that uh, this connection will become much more direct, much more precise. And that may be the power of personalized medicine because now, uh, like our experiences, we had personalized medicine. We were a precursor. You know, crochet disease or fibrous disease or pompa disease. When you have the disease and we treated these patients and we treated them early enough, they would be helped 100% of the case. They would get help. Um, uh, being early is, of course, important to avoid the morbidities. But uh, and that's personalized medicine. We had a diagnostic, we had a disease, and we had a product. In the future, this will exist for many more uh, programs, and you already see it today. And and these are very compelling. These are financeable. You know, everybody likes to be certain about something. The problem in healthcare is that we can't treat certain things, lots of things. And this trial and error, this this sense of waste, the sense of wasting time, and and having the patient still suffer, and observing it as an as a physician or uh, in a hospital or just hand holding, that is so enormously frustrating and the enormous cost of doing that. Uh, that when once you have something that works, you're so grateful. You know, you can figure out a way to make that therapy available. There's a lot of people who are saying they're really worried that innovation is not being funded. Um, the biotech industry, you know, a new genzyme would not be created today because the, the initial funding wouldn't be there. And it sounds like you're not particularly worried about that. No. It's good news. The funding wasn't there then, right? There was nobody sitting there waiting for to fund genzyme in the early days. Uh, you know, and the world was so much less familiar. The world has now learned and, and has an appreciation for that something can really make this level of difference. The world is not going to sit on the side and says, sorry, we're not going to fund this. You will find a way. Mm. And we have more possibilities to make that case uh, in the future than we, I think, had in the past. So I'm very, uh, over the next 25 years, I'm very uh, positive. I had 25, 30 years in this industry and 10 years prior at Baxter, similar. Um, and uh, we did many things in the dark. At Genzyme, we, we were fortunate to have our first product to be such a highly specific product where you could look the patient in the eye. Mm -hmm. um, and that has, in very unpredictable ways, um, uh, people couldn't see that Jensen was going to be that successful in the early days. Today, uh, we understand it, and we don't we don't wonder about it. It's not Jensen, it's not Henry Turmer that did this. It's what we created for the patient that did it. And that, I think, will become the movement uh, in the next 25 years. Anything else you'd like to add? No, there's a whole story. I uh, feel sorry for you that you have to sort it out. <laughs> yeah, it'll be easy. Thanks for coming in. I appreciate your time. All right, ready. All right, that was Henry Tremere. I hope that was enjoyable. Thanks for listening. I'd also like to thank Mr. Tremere for coming into our offices and giving his time. I'd like to thank the Midwest Quiet for use of their music. 
I'm Brady Huggett, and you've been listening to Nature Biotechnology's First Rounders podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.